Chapter 19 of Uncle Silas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Uncle Silas by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Chapter 19. Au revoir. Mrs. Rusk was fond of assuring me that Madame did not like a bone in my skin. Instinctively I knew that she bore me no goodwill, although I really believe it was her wish to make me think quite the reverse. At all events, I had no desire to see Madame again before her departure, especially as she had thrown upon me one momentary glance in the study, which seemed to me charged with very peculiar feelings. You may be very sure, therefore, that I had no desire for a formal leave-taking at her departure. I took my hat and cloak, therefore, and stole out quietly. My ramble was a sequestered one, and well screened, even at this late season, with foliage, the pathway devious among the stems of old trees, and its flooring interlaced and groined with their knotted roots. Though near the house, it was a sylvian solitude. A little brook ran darkling and glimmering through it. Wild strawberries and other woodland plants strewed the ground and the sweet notes and flutter of small birds made the shadow of the boughs cheery. I had been fully an hour in this picturesque solitude when I heard in the distance the ring of carriage wheels, announcing to me that Madame de la Rogère had finally set out upon her travels. I thanked heaven. I could have danced and sung with delight. I heaved a great sigh and looked up through the branches to the clear blue sky. But things are oddly timed. Just at this moment I heard Madame's voice close at my ear, and her large, bony hand was laid upon my shoulder. We were instantly face to face, I recoiling and for a moment speechless with fright. In very early youth we do not appreciate the restraints which act upon malignity, or know how effectually fear protects us where conscience is wanting. Quite alone in this solitary spot, detected and overtaken with an awful instinct by my enemy, what might not be about to happen to me at that moment? Frightened as usual, Maud, she said quietly, and eyeing me with a sinister smile. And with cause you think, no doubt. What have you done to injure poor madame? Well, I think I know, little girl, and have quite discovered the cleverness of my sweet little Maud. Eh, is it not so? Petite carogne. Ha, 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 ha! I was too much confounded to answer. You see, my dear child, she said, shaking her uplifted finger with a hideous archness at me. You could not hide what you have done from poor madame. You cannot look so innocent, but I can see your pretty little villainy quite plain. You dear little dear bless. What I have done, I have no reproach of myself for it. If I could explain, your papa would say, I have done right, and you should thank me on your knees. But I cannot explain yet. She was speaking, as it were, in little paragraphs, with a momentary pause between each, to allow its meaning to impress itself. If I were to choose to explain, your papa, he would implore me to remain. But no, I would not, notwithstanding your so cheerful house, your charming servants, 
your papa's amusing society, and your affectionate and sincere heart, my sweet little marmaud. I am to go to London first, where I have also good friends. Next I will go abroad for some time, but be sure, my sweetest Maud, wherever I may happen to be, I will remember you. Aha, yes, most certainly I will remember you. And although I shall not always be near, yet I shall know everything about my charming little Maud. You will not know how, but I shall indeed. Everything. And to be sure, my dearest child, I will sometime be able to give you the sensible proofs of my gratitude and affection. You understand. The carriage is waiting at the Utrecht style, and I must go on. You did not expect to see me. Here, I will appear perhaps as suddenly another time. It is great pleasure to us both. This opportunity to make our adieu. Farewell, my dearest little Maud. I will never cease to think of you, and of some way to recompense the kindness you have shown for poor madame. My hand hung by my side, and she took, not it, but my thumb, and shook it, folded in her broad palm, and looking on me as she held it, as if meditating mischief. Then suddenly she said, You will always remember madame, I think, and I will remind you of me beside, and for the present, farewell and I hope you may be as happy as you deserve. The large sinister face looked on me for a second with its latent sneer, and then with a sharp nod and a spasmodic shake of my imprisoned thumb, she turned, holding her dress together and showing her great bony ankles. She strode rapidly away over the gnarled roots into the perspective of the trees, and I did not awake, as it were, until she had quite disappeared in the distance. Events of this kind made no difference with my father, but every other face at Knoll was gladdened by the removal. My energies had returned, my spirits were come again. The sunlight was happy, the flowers innocent, the songs and flutter of the birds once more gay, and all nature delightful and rejoicing. After the first elation of relief, now and then a filmy shadow of Madame de la Rogere would glide across the sunlight, and the remembrance of her menace return with an unexpected pang of fear. "'Well, if there isn't impotence,' cried Mrs. Rusk, "'but never you trouble your head about it, miss. Them sorts all alike. You never saw a rogue yet that was found out and didn't threaten the honest folk as he was leaving behind with all sorts. There was Martin the gamekeeper, and Jervis the footman, and I mind well how hard they swore all they would not do when they was a-goin', and who ever heard of them since? They always threaten that way. Them sort always does, and none ever the worse. Not but she would if she could, mind ye. But there it is. She can't do nothing but bite her nails and cuss us. Not she, ha <laughs> So I was comforted. But Madame's evil smile, nevertheless, from time to time, would sail across my vision with a silent menace, and my spirit sank, and a fate, draped in black, whose face I could not see, took me by the hand and led me away, in the spirit, silently, on an awful exploration from which I would rouse myself with a start, and Madame was gone for a while. She had, however, judged her little parting well. 
She contrived to leave her glamour over me, and in my dreams she troubled me. I was, however, indescribably relieved. I wrote in high spirits to Cousin Monica, and wondered what plans my father might have formed about me, and whether we were to stay at home, or go to London, or go abroad. Of the last, the pleasantest arrangement in some respects, I had nevertheless an occult horror. A secret conviction haunted me that we were to go abroad. We should there meet Madame, which to me was like meeting my evil genius. I have said more than once that my father was an odd man, and the reader will, by this time, have seen that there was much about him not easily understood. I often wonder whether, if he had been franker, I should have found him less odd than I supposed, or more odd still. Things that moved me profoundly did not apparently affect him at all. The departure of Madame, under the circumstances which attended it, appeared to my childish mind an event of the vastest importance. No one was indifferent to the occurrence in the house but its master. He never alluded again to Madame de la Rogere, but whether it connected with her exposure and dismissal I could not say. There did appear to be some new care or trouble now at work in my father's mind. "'I have been thinking a great deal about you, Maud. I am anxious. I have not been so troubled for years. Why has not Monica Knollys a little more sense?' This oracular sentence he spoke, having stopped me in the hall, and then saying, "'We shall see,' he left me as abruptly as he had appeared. Did he apprehend any danger to me from the vindictiveness of Madame? A day or two afterwards, as I was in the Dutch garden, I saw him on the terrace steps. He beckoned to me, and came to meet me as I approached. You must be very solitary, little Maud. It is not good. I have written to Monica, in a matter of detail she is competent to advise, Perhaps she will come here for a short visit. I was very glad to hear this. You are more interested than for my time I can be in vindicating his character. Whose character, sir? I ventured to inquire during the pause that followed. One trick which my father had acquired from his habits of solitude and silence was this of assuming that the context of his thoughts was legible to others forgetting that they had not been spoken. Whose? Your Uncle Silas's. In the course of nature he must survive me. He will then represent the family name. Would you make some sacrifice to clear that name, Maud? I answered briefly, but my face, I believe, showed my enthusiasm. He turned on me such an approving smile as you might fancy, lighting up the rugged features of a pale old Rembrandt. I can tell you, Maud, if my life could have done it, it should not have been undone. Ubi lapsus quid feci. But I had almost made up my mind to change my plan and leave all to time. Edax rerum, to illuminate or to consume. But I think little Maud would like to contribute to the restitution of her family name. It may cost you something. Are you willing to buy it at a sacrifice? Is there... I don't speak of fortune that is not involved, 
but is there any other honourable sacrifice you would shrink from to dispel the disgrace under which our most ancient and honourable name must otherwise continue to languish oh none none indeed sir i am delighted again i saw the rembrandt smile well maud i am sure there is no risk but you are to suppose there is are you still willing to accept it again i assented you are worthy of your blood maud Rithin. it will come soon and it won't last long but you must not let people like monica knollis frighten you i was lost in wonder if you allow them to possess you with their follies you had better recede in time they may make the ordeal as terrible as hell itself you have zeal have you nerve i thought in such a cause i had nerve for anything well maud in the course of a few months and it may be sooner there must be a change i have had a letter from london this morning that assures me of that i must then leave you for a time in my absence be faithful to the duties that will arise to whom much is committed of him will much be required you shall promise me not to mention this conversation to monica knollis if you are a talking girl and cannot trust yourself say so and we will not ask her to come also don't invite her to talk about your uncle silas i have reasons do you quite understand my conditions yes sir your uncle silas he said speaking suddenly in loud and fierce tones that sounded from so old a man almost terrible lies under an intolerable slander i don't correspond with him i don't sympathize with him i never quite did he has grown religious and that's well but there are things in which even religion should not bring a man to acquiesce and from what i can learn he the person primarily affected the cause though the innocent cause of this great calamity bears it with an easy apathy which is mistaken and liable easily to be mistaken and such as no ruthen under the circumstances ought to exhibit i told him what we ought to do and offered to open my purse for the purpose but he would not or did not indeed he never took my advice he followed his own and a foul and dismal shoal he has drifted on it is not for his sake why should i that i have longed and labored to remove the disgraceful slur under which his ill fortune has thrown us he troubles himself little about it i believe he is meek meeker than i he cares less about his children than i about you maud he is selfishly sunk in futurity a feeble visionary i am not so i believe it to be a duty to take care of others besides myself the character and influence of an ancient family is a peculiar heritage sacred but destructible and woe to him who either destroys it or suffers it to perish this was the longest speech i had ever heard my father speak before or after he abruptly resumed yes we will maud you and i 
we'll leave one proof on record which, fairly read, will go far to convince the world. He looked round, but we were alone. The garden was nearly always solitary, and few visitors ever approached the house from that side. I have talked too long, I believe. We are children to the last. Leave me, Maud. I think I know you better than I did, and I am pleased with you. Go, child. I'll sit here. If he had acquired new ideas of me, so had I of him from that interview. I had no idea till then how much passion still burned in that aged frame, nor how full of energy and fire that face, generally so stern and ashen, could appear. As I left him seated on that rustic chair by the steps, the traces of that storm were still discernible on his features. His gathered brows, glowering eyes, and strangely hectic face, and the grim compression of his mouth still showed the agitation which, somehow, in grey old age, shocks and alarms the young. End of chapter 19